Welcome to StablePod, the podcast that explores the exciting world of decentralized systems and beyond. Join us as we delve into the limitless possibilities of decentralized governance, decentralized finance, and decentralized organizations with the most creative and innovative minds in the space. We'll hear from trailblazers who are building, shaping, and maintaining the future of these decentralized systems. From DAOs to NFTs, DeFi to Web3, we cover it all on StablePod. Welcome back to another episode of StablePod. I'm your host, Juan Escavel. I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Gustav Ehrentoft. How are you today, Gustav? Very good. I'm really excited to talk to my good friend and uh, former boss, uh, Greg, today. So all good here. Yeah, it should be a fun one. Today's guest can be described as a protocol designer and founder, helping push forward the DeFi space. Greg DePrisco is co-founder at Ajna Finance and M0 Labs, and the former head of business development at MakerDAO. Welcome to the podcast, Greg. Thank you for having me, guys. And obviously, good to see you again, Gustav. I'd love to start things off uh, with your journey. I think you have a very interesting journey that has greatly influenced your approach and your and your design philosophy. Uh, could you walk us through your path that ultimately landed you where you are today? And we only have 50 minutes. Uh, <laughs> so I started out... Uh, in college, I was, I was in my senior year of college in 2010, and I got interested in Bitcoin. And uh, that, you know, was my first foray into the crypto rabbit hole. I couldn't really do anything with it because I wasn't a developer and uh, I didn't really have that much money. So it was more just watching Bitcoin. But uh, in when I got out of college, I went into trading. I was a commodity futures trader for about six years. But the whole time, I was just you know constantly on the internet researching crypto because I thought it was so much cooler than anything else going on. And uh, in 2015, I finally made the leap with my my boss at the time, now business partner, Joe Q. And uh, we started the first ETF that was going to track the price of Ether. Now, naturally, uh, the SEC did not approve that ETF, or have they approved any ETF. But uh, it, it was a good jumping point into the industry professionally. Uh, from there, we started Distributed Capital, which was one of the first crypto venture capital funds. It's still around. We still manage it. It's just a, a pretty passive fund. And during that process, we had our core portfolio investment that was MakerDAO. And at the time, Maker was just a bunch of guys in a chat room talking about this software they were going to build. Uh, and we decided that we loved it so much that we would join the team full time. So right, right before they launched the original single collateral version of DAI, I came on as their head of business development and my business partner, Joe, came on of their, as their head of trading and markets. And for the next four and a half years, we, uh, we helped to build DAI and grow out the maker ecosystem. And that, that's also, of course, where I hired Gustav, which was a, a, a good move on my part, I think. And uh, not quite hired Do uh, directly to the BD team, but uh, poached Do, which is, you know... Uh... I, was I, I feel like do hire himself onto the BD team more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that's another quite funny story, but uh, maybe for another time. Yeah, I'm curious. During your time at MakerDAO, um, what, what what do you think was like the main things that influenced you uh, and where you are today? I, I, we'll get into Ajna in, in a bit, but I'm just curious, like, to hear more about that journey during make uh, your time at MakerDAO and kind of what you saw and kind of what has influenced you the most. Uh, well, I, today. I still think that the vision of Maker is where the space ultimately needs to go. The the original vision of Maker. I don't really know what the vision is anymore, but uh, back when I started, it was the idea that anybody could be their own bank. So I I think. To appreciate Maker, you had to have a little bit of an idea of how banking worked, which most people don't and didn't. But uh, 
I was coming from finance, so I, I was able to see it very clearly. And I think that's why I landed the biz dev job in the first place, because I was one of the few people that could actually articulate MakerDAO to non-Solidity developers. And uh, the, vi the vision there was always, imagine there's this software you could use. And as long as it knows the price of the assets you hold, you can print your own money, which is exactly what a bank does. You walk into a bank, they, they look at your assets and they say, okay, we'll print you this much money but you need their permission and it, and it becomes a very centralized process. And obviously, you know, I, I was originally interested in Bitcoin because of my libertarian leanings. It becomes a great place for the government to control your life. So I was always just implicitly against the, the fiat banking system and also was uh, very disillusioned with the government because it, this was all during the great fin financial crisis. And I just saw the whole way it was unfolding as just hopelessly corrupt. And I thought that this technology was the best way to solve it. Now, that was the naive perspective I wanted to make her deal with. <laughs> Coming out four and a half years later, I realized, okay, that vision is great. But from where we are today to actually being able to implement that vision at scale, we are light years from that. I mean, we're talking like the distance between the Milky Way and Andromeda. Like, it is far. So uh, that's when I started setting my sights on building other protocols, because I think there's a lot of intermediary infrastructure that needs to get built before we can realize that final vision. So so something about MakerDAO is obviously that it's very org heavy, like it, at least, you know, the previous iteration. Um, did you just not like, uh, did you see that as more as, as friction than, than, and you're more interested in the tech itself? Uh, because I know Maker gets this flack for just kind of over, maybe over indexing or maybe over relying on this like people, right? People. And, and then I know there's a lot of, there's a philosophical debate in DeFi. Uh, you know, there's a, the, the people oriented organizations, startup esque protocols. And then there's the maybe where you, where you sit, which is more, I just care about the technology creating, you know, a protocol that's not, you know, there's human resistant, capture resistant. Um, I I don't know if you have any response yeah, to take. Unfortunately, I think there's a lot of nuance to the point. I, I wish there was an easy answer yeah. where you could just say people are bad, get them out of the protocol, or people are good, let's just run everything like a startup. But the, the answer is always going to be somewhere in between because there's certain things you just can't do without people. I mean, th this was one of the core lessons from Maker that you, you know, we, we tried to make it a completely automated system and it just doesn't work, at least not today. Uh, the problem though with Maker is that it's not resilient. So the people that control it, they're known, they're predictable, they're fixed. They have, you know, potentially conflicting incentives with a lot of other people in the protocol. So I, I think that it just wasn't designed in a way that was, if you are going to incorporate people into your design, it needs to be very carefully thought out. And that the attack surface of the people in Maker was too big. So you know, to, to get to that vision of everyone being their own bank, you, you really need it you need to get away from governance because if you have governance, it's going to get corrupted. I mean, like th think about the reason we wanted that in the first place. We didn't like the government, right? Like <laughs> we did, we just replaced the government with a bunch of internet and nods. That's, that's a horrible idea. Yeah. So to get into specifics, I know during your time at maker, uh, you were probably best known for leading the charge for real world assets. Correct me, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, it seems that, you know, given the current high interest rate environment, you're, you're kind of, push for this has kind of uh, been proven yeah, right. I, I think this is um, one of my you uh, secret claims to fame that I, I, at least I'm pretty sure that I introduced the term real world assets into the crypto space. 
And I deeply regret that. I mean, it's such a stupid phrase. <laughs> it makes no sense. <laughs> right. Uh, there, there's people that say real world assets are also stable coins, right? Like anything that's pegged to a USD or to a fiat currency is, is also considered. So the term it's is meaningless. kind of what is a real mis- world misunderstood. What, what, yeah. a real world as opposed to what? <laughs> I, I, I started saying Seattle. it that way because I was exclusively talking to crypto people and I needed a way to differentiate between crypto native assets and uh, assets that were not crypto native. And for their, for like, for their worldview, a non crypto native asset wasn't real. So I had to actually insert the word real into the phrase and say real world assets, <laughs> things that you didn't make up out of thin air. <laughs> yeah. So c- could you maybe give us a quick like history lesson on what you tried to achieve with this uh, your, during your time at MakerDAO and like what you saw, like what was your biggest barrier? Because uh, I know, I think in the end, the lesson was that you couldn't really achieve what you wanted to achieve based on structural structural reasons, organizational reasons, et cetera. Oh no, it, it's just impossible to achieve what I wanted to achieve. I mean, the, the reason that we took the path down towards real world assets was because A, that's inevitable. You, you cannot have a stable coin with global demand without having a commensurate amount of global assets to back it. Uh, the idea that you could back a stable coin just with ETH is complete nonsense. Like, I, I don't even have to qualify that as being my opinion. Like, that's math. You can't do it. <laughs> uh, eventually, the demand will outstrip the supply of ETH, and then you have a big problem. Or you can put crushing negative interest rates like Rye, and then I, I think you need to revisit your definition of a stable coin if your stable coin depreciates 30% a year. Uh, but I, you know, the, the true answer is like we I think we were all on this collective journey to learn exactly what money was, because a lot of a lot of people still don't even really have a, a strong opinion on that is an opinion. Right. Like, you know, m- money, money is kind of in the eye of the beholder sometimes. But what we learned is that whatever your unit of account is, like, let's say it's dollars. The, the only thing that you want to hold as a saver is something that is perfectly substitutable with that unit of account or perfectly usable as a unit of account. And in the real world, that's treasuries. It's it's short-term T-bills or it's reserves at the Fed, which you don't have access to. So the closest thing we can do to approximate a US dollar is is make the collateral exclusively short-term US treasuries. And that's, as you're seeing, that's where every stable coin is pivoting because that, that fundamentally is what money is in our world it's and it's not so, bank deposits yeah so i mean i think like uh, of of course there is like uh, i think like a lot of other branches around like real world assets that that you know it's also like being explored right and and i i of course like know a lot of like the troubles that we ran into uh, during our time at maker with this specific topic um but like i like looking at, at this and you know knowing your story at maker and seeing you know what you're building now with m0 and the same thing knowing your story around you know governance and the the fr- friction and frustrations you're had there and then seeing what you're doing with Ashna, um, maybe you can be like a little bit more direct and kind of like, you know, the specific ways that, you know, your past there had like inspired you to improve uh, upon like your, your two uh, like uh, new ventures. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about Ashna mainly because um, M0 is still in development. But we, when I left the Maker Foundation in April of 2021, I, I was obviously very frustrated with the governance process, <laughs> Ma- mainly because I saw Maker as this blank slate that you could do so many things with. And the primary impediment to dealing with it was the governance. Uh, obviously, it had other problems and Maker is a whole different animal because it has a stable coin. But at the time, uh, as I mentioned, my, my business partner, Joe, was running the trading desk at the foundation. And they were 
operating all over DeFi. And another big problem we saw was that within DeFi itself, there was a hard scalability limit that was being caused by oracles and governance. So if you wanted to spit, like what would happen is you'd have a new asset issuer come out of the market. That asset issuer would need liquidity. Obviously, if it was at the Maker Foundation, uh, the desk would want to provide liquidity and die. But that's when you'd start hitting the hurdles. So provide liquidity where? Where are you going to get inventory? Uh, it basically put you down this labyrinth where you needed to go and pitch a DAO like Ave or Compound for three to nine months that they should add your asset as collateral. And then they would have all these requirements and there'd be all this politics. And even after all that was done, you needed a liquid secondary market because you needed to uh, have an oracle. And the only way you can have a price oracle is if you have a secondary market that's more liquid than the primary market you're trying to facilitate via lending. So when we left the foundation together, we said, we need to fix this. How could we do that? Well, we need to build a lending protocol that kind of like Uniswap is for trading, doesn't use oracles uh, in order to price the collateral. And little did we know what a journey that was going to be. <laughs> but uh, two and a half years later, here we are. And uh, Ajna is pretty much done. And it's about to be redeployed on mainnet. And, and the whole point of Ajna, like every design decision that we made, and unfortunately, Ajna is a very complex protocol, but uh, I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, every design decision that we made was around removing the need for centralized price feeds in the protocol. So, so maybe this is a good uh, point to actually define what Ajna is. Maybe for some of the listeners that have heard of Ajna, see that it's a lending protocol, but maybe you could actually articulate why it's uh, unique, what it brings to the table that's novel and, and more interesting than the current uh, lending protocol space. So I, I, I like to compare Ajna to Uniswap. We, we think of it like Uniswap for lending. It's a place where you as a user can go and spin up a pool that has any arbitrary asset pairing. So you could spin it up for ETH to die. You could spin it up for a board ape to ETH. Uh, tr truly any two, two assets you want to use for lending and borrowing. And you can do that in one click, and then you have a lending market. The, the, the software manages everything else for you. The only thing you need to do as a user is decide the price that you want to lend against the collateral app. So if you're going to that ETH to die pool, you need to input the price that you're willing to lend at. So if you think that you're comfortable lending against ETH uh, at 1,000 DAI per ETH, then you'd go to the pool and you'd deposit at 1,000 and you'd leave it there until you, you felt like the market was either too close or too far from where you deposited. So this, uh, this all sounds incredibly complex, maybe for you, because you're, you're well aware of how the inner workings work. To you, it's pretty straightforward, but I know there's a lot of... Um, back and forth in terms of designing protocols for the end user in mind, making the UX as, as seamless and simple as possible. Was that considered in this in this process of designing Ajna? Uh, I'll be honest, not really, because the, there's only, it, from my perspective, there was only one way to design Ajna. And it took us a long time to arrive at it. But like I said, everything we did was in service of removing the need for that centralized price oracle. Uh, once you've done that, yeah, you, you end up with a lot of complexity because Oracles are extremely complex mechanisms. I, I would doubt that many people could tell what's under the hood of a Chainlink Oracle or a Chronicled Oracle or and any of the major Oracle providers in DeFi today. Like they, they are doing extremely advanced stuff behind the scenes. And that complexity just has to exist. Whenever you're trying to get a real-time price from one source to another that aren't connected, that, that is going to be a complex process if you want it to be secure. Uh, so that complexity has to live somewhere. In most DeFi protocols, it lives outside the protocol, it lives with the Oracle, and they take on that trust assumption to, uh, to have it. 
Ajna said, no, we want that to be outside the protocol, not, not in the protocol. So in order to do that, we had to build the complexity into the protocol. And I think if you look at the complexity in Ajna versus some of the centralized Oracle providers, Ajna is actually orders of magnitude less complex, but compared to other DeFi protocols that get to abstract all that complexity to a third party, a trusted third party, it looks complex. But our answer to, to your question is front ends. So we, we think front ends should handle this complexity for users. We don't want them making risk decisions on behalf of users, but they can abstract away a lot of the uh, the, the weird stuff to automation that, that the user would, would just do kind of like a robot. Yeah, uh, I just want to note your Uniswap analogy. I think it's interesting because they I, I noted in some of their recent uh, comms and some of the, the communication and, 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 and uh, material they've put out recently that they're switching over from having people consider Uniswap as an application layer protocol uh, like an app to like, I think it's, they describe it now as like a marketplace or more of like a, um, I forgot what the term that they use, but I thought it was very uh, in line with what you just described, which is like, it's the front ends. It's, it's, it's just the protocol is the back end, uh, And it's up to these front ends to, to basically serve the, the UI UX to the end user. Yeah. What you see happening is that protocols are running into this complexity barrier where in the past they were able to abstract away a lot of the complexity, mainly through, through governance and oracles. So if, if you think about the other way a protocol can abstract complexity, governance. All right, users are not gonna wanna, let, let's use Compound or Aave as an example. So users don't wanna manage LTVs, users don't want to uh, worry about utilization and interest rates, et cetera. So let's abstract that to governance and let this group of people decide. But that, it, all of these things are, uh, I like to think of them as a scalability curve. So if you think about a DeFi protocol that abstracts all of the complexity away to governance and oracles, that scales really well when it launches and then starts to trend towards scaling really poorly as you try to, to, try to grow. Uh, something like Ajna is gonna be the opposite. It's gonna have a lot of friction when it launches because the front ends have to get the abstractions correct. The, uh, the users need to start to conceptualize some of these new flows, but as it scales, it really hardens into something that's very, very uh, simple. Because once all of those things start to solidify, you have an immutable base layer primitive that'll never change on you and you can build on it forever. Yeah, I think I think like a, a good, good example here to also look at is kind of like, if you look at you know something which is, is centrally managed as well, which you could say that you know like for example like asset listings on like Maker, Aave, and Compound is right, uh, like you know centralized exchanges and like when they list you know assets on trading, right? Um, I think like on Uniswap, I don't know what they have today exactly, but I remember maybe like a year ago, a year and a half ago, I looked and they had like over thirty-five thousand pairs. Today that might be even higher, right? Where like if you have any any centralized management of of anything, you know, it will be extremely difficult to get above, especially when it's borrowing and lending, where you have to constantly sit and manage the rates to get above, you know, even just like I think Maker was like getting super complex when there was like fifteen or twenty asset types in Maker, right? Where I was like. It was crazy the amount of work required from delegates, right? Uh, on like a, a, a weekly basis, it was a full-time job. Um, and, and even then, you know, you weren't able to, to manage it in the best way. I think we can all, all agree on that. Yeah, I, I think that DeFi is heading in the right direction. The stuff we're building today, I, I hope, will be the blue chips of tomorrow. And, and I think you're seeing the blue chips of today start to kind of wake up and smell the coffee and adapt. Like you've seen Rune put Maker through this enormous shift of strategy and I think it's in retrospect, it, he looks pretty smart for it because uh, 
like Maker had to change. Maker just could not scale in its original implementation. Yeah, and it was funny actually because when when the endgame plan kind of like came out of the beginning, everyone was like, you know, really giving a lot of I think like negative comments about like, you know, like this was too big of a change, it was too complex, it was not proven. But but now you know it looks to actually be like planning out as as kind of like intended. Um, and and it's also trying to you know especially exactly as you're saying right kind of like trying to break some of these things down in smaller pieces right um, they don't use you know sub DAOs rather than necessarily like you know the, the abstraction for front ends but but I think that you know kind of like moving in that direction is also like a sign of maturity right uh, I just think there's still like a lot of protocols that maybe not haven't arrived at that point yet they will the mark the market will push them there. <laughs> But, but also just to comment on the Uniswap analogy. So the, Gustav pointed out that Uniswap has like 1,500 trading pairs or something. And uh, notice oh, also... Like 30, over 30,000. Oh, 30,000. Like, wow. Yeah, yeah. I, cool. I don't know how much it is today, but it was like, I think it's like a year and a half or two years ago I looked at it. And that was like over 30,000 pairs. Um, oh, so, wow. yeah. Well, Azure supports NFTs too, so hopefully we'll have more. Uh, but, but my point was going to be that Notice also that Uniswap does more volume than Coinbase for Ethereum-related assets. So I, I think it, it kind of proves the model that if you can capture an like, and this is more of a go-to-market business perspective, but if you can capture an asset in its infancy, it, once you get the liquidity, it's not going to leave you. It's not going to say it's not going to be like, oh, you know, this asset started on Ajna and that became its primary lending market because Ajna had it when it had a one million dollar market cap. Uh, and then, oh, it has a billion dollar market cap. Now it's going to go to Ave and live its life there. It's going to stay on Aja. Just like an asset that starts its life in a Uniswap pool doesn't suddenly become more liquid on Coinbase. It stays in the Uniswap pool because that's what liquidity was. And market makers or you know, even the biggest passive liquidity providers, they just don't care that much. Like they, they, they have access to most of these venues and they just want the easiest experience. So that, that's our bet. I was going to ask a related question to that a little bit further, but I think it's it's good to ask right now. So you, I think you described liquidity as a moat, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, for, for some of these protocols. It's, it's your core it's moat. It's something moat. that differentiates you. <laughs> right. So so related to Ajna, it's, it's governance-free, Oracle-free. It means it's not upgradable. So mm -hmm. uh, we've, we've talked to other people in the space uh, when there is a vulnerability, which we can also touch, touch on what happened at Ajna with that. Um, the the liquidity is hard. That's not easy to move. Um, so I guess my question to you is, uh, you know, pro governance propo proponents of governance will say that we need that upgradability uh, to enable liquidity to be able to move around in case there's something goes bad. Um, but you're you're designing something in the opposite field where it's a lot harder to be able to move that liquidity in in, th in cases that things go awry. Do you have a, do you have a respond or, or take there? Yeah, I mean, think about what they're really saying. They're saying we need this ability to control your funds like a regulated institution <laughs> so that you don't have to pay attention. I mean, that's literally why we have financial regulators. Like financial regulators exist for that exact paradigm where an issuer or a, uh, a financial services company says, give me your money. You don't have to pay attention. I will take care of it. And there's so many things that go wrong in that relationship that we needed this entire regulatory apparatus to be put on top of it. Whereas with a, with a real protocol, the, the concept is, yeah, you have to pay attention. You're an individual. You're responsible for yourself. But we can never touch your money. We can't pause it. We can't steal it. We can't freeze it. Like that, this is, you're just using code that you can go audit yourself and you are entirely responsible for what happens next. And I mean, I really think if that's not the paradigm that we land on, 
what the hell was the point of this? Like, what, <laughs> why are we here and why did we build crypto if we're just building the exact same systems that we had with with like less efficient governance models? I mean, I I I, I must uh, you know also make the counterpoint here that of course you know just by using the blockchain itself we we do uh, get a lot of improvements already compared to the traditional system, right? Uh, I do agree that like. Um, you know, some of the, the, the specifically borrowing and lending markets is like what we're talking about here, right? Uh, because I think like, you know, a lot of other points in, in crypto in, you know, I think, you know, whether you like how Maker, you know, is governed or not, like DAI is still immensely valuable as, as just a, a stable coin that you can like use and there's no restrictions on, you know, DAI itself. Uh, you could say that there's some something in the back end which could go wrong because of the governance, but I still believe that it's 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 you know better than like what we had before, right? Um, I do think though that you know uh, also just kind of like to go back to the point of like you know whether we had these systems and a, a great ability, right? I think like um, once that there's some things in protocols which you know kind of like a great ability is is often like a security argument and. Um, Security is something which, you know, after like a certain period of time, you can kind of like assume that the protocol is just like, you know, secure enough, right? I think that, you know, it's really only like in the beginning where you want to have this kind of like upgradability or even, you know, like delays in like governance implementations or things like this or, or no, no delays in governance implementation, sorry, uh, like this because, you know, there might be like a bug in the code. But I think like after like a while, you would be able to like assume that, you know, unless some groundbreaking new uh, revelations happens around how we interact with, you know, Solidity, for example, then, you know, the code should be deemed somewhat secure. Um, I think like just to kind of top on that, like at, at what point would you feel safe about like, you know, Ashna uh, kind of like from that standpoint, at what point do you hope that Ashna like scales to what you want to see it scale like? Yeah, well, well, you made me realize now that I misspoke. So there's two moats in DeFi. One is liquidity. The other is security. And I think this is why it's very hard for new protocols to to crack into a market, because if you have two options and they have relatively similar functionality, you're going to go with the one that has been more battle tested, that has more TVL, that's been around there for longer, because the chance that there's a vulnerability is just very high. Uh, that, that's that's true for literally every. I mean, I don't think we've had a single DeFi protocol without one critical vulnerability. I think every single one has had one at some point. Uh, actually, no, I'm sorry. Uniswap did not have one. Uniswap's like the I, pun intended, but the unicorn of that <laughs> that paradigm. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, I you know, for, for me, I feel safe with Ajna when we launch it again because I I understand it so well, and I I've seen the ten audits that we've gone through. But for for an outside user, I think this is why things like yield farming are very useful. People people have you know the new rave is shitting all over yield, far, yield farming and being like, oh, it's uh, it's pointless. You know, you're, you're not. It's not a good strategy. I think people miss the point of yield farming. The point of yield farming is to reward these early users for the risk that they're taking by depositing into a new protocol. And in doing so, they provide that TVL that gives new people the confidence to come in later on saying, okay, this protocol has had this TVL for this period of time. So I, I think that's how Ajna will scale. Like it'll take a while. And going, going back to my diagram, how like Ajna's inverse of what you'll see with these other governance-based protocols, Governance-based protocols, they, they are constantly upgrading their smart contracts. At, at a certain point, I don't know where the threshold is, it becomes exponentially more likely that you introduce a vulnerability via one of those upgrades than an immutable protocol that's been there and hasn't changed for all that time 
has one that's suddenly discovered. I, I want to take a quick step back for on Anajna uh, before we get into the exploit and and what the you know what hap what's going on now the, with the redeployment. Um, I'm curious to hear from you, Greg. You know what was it like designing um, and and I guess the initial launch of the protocol. You know what were the main takeaways that you learned in this multi year long process? Maybe for individuals that are not really familiar with what it takes to to design a protocol, um, at least in the in the in the way you envision it. Uh, so yeah, I'm just curious to hear if you. You know, what were your biggest takeaways, things you learned along the way that you will carry with you going forward? I, I literally only learned one lesson the whole time, and that is to avoid complexity like the plague. Uh, any, any unnecessary complexity in your protocol will cause you hell <laughs> for the rest of your life. Like, it, is, it is just really terrible. And uh, I think especially working so closely with the Solidity developers, you, you get an understanding of why. Like, it, it is just complexity and protocols are just not compatible. And like to, to the extent you need complexity, yeah, you need it. And maybe that complexity can actually become an advantage later on. Like I think that's going to happen in Ajna. As, as I was saying earlier, the reason Uniswap stuck around and gets all this volume is because it, it has an asset in its infancy. Ajna is the only lending protocol that can capture new assets as they come out. A any other protocol that I'm aware of, they use oracles. There's no such thing as an oracle on an asset that was minted yesterday. That is that is physically impossible to do. So that asset has one place to go, and that's Ajna. And it's going to be really damn hard for somebody else to build a competing protocol to Ajna that doesn't use oracles because of that complexity. Because they're going to have to spend two and a half years and millions of dollars on 10 audits in order to get there. So uh, yeah, I, I think that the, the whole auditability thing is is very important but it complexity is horrible but if you need it you need it and it can be a competitive advantage you just need to know how to handle it yeah totally all right let's get into the griefing vulnerability that was found uh maybe speak a little bit to like the lead up to that point what was identified and then the the you know what the fallout from that and, and maybe where we are today now yeah so we originally launched the protocol in june of 2023 uh we had six audits up to that point and most of them were looking at the protocol from a code security perspective, not so much a game theory perspective. You know, I think when you when you hire these auditing firms, they're very engineering focused. They're not so much game theory focused. Uh, we had done our best in analyzing it from a game theory perspective. And about two months after we launched in August, we got an Immunify report from a white hat that said, hey, I figured out a way to add debt to people's positions that they don't want. And we're like, well, that's no good. <laughs> do you have an incentive to do that? Not really, but I can. So uh, that's why we called it a grief. Like it, it, there was really not um, an economic incentive to do this to people. And I think that's why you never saw it happen because it is like, you know, you'll pay gas fees probably and, you know, you might go to jail or something for doing this. <laughs> probably not a lot of incentive to do it to somebody. But the fact that you could do it to somebody and we're trying to be an immutable protocol that's around for 100 years, not for two, uh, we needed to make sure that there were absolutely no known flaws in the protocol. So what we did was we suggested, hey, everybody, please wind down your positions. Again, this goes back to like, if we were governance based, we probably would have slapped a Band-Aid on it and been back up and running the next day. Here we are three months later, we <laughs> went through four more audits and are uh, putting fixed reviews in this week. Uh, but yeah, it, it was a tough experience. Like it was, it was a huge learning learning experience for me to deal with that. It, it's a it's a horrible feeling when you have to ask because you know, we, we actually did really well in two months. We got thirty million dollars in TVL, and especially that the depths of the bear market. Like I think that was really impressive. 
Um, it shows that we had like immediate product market fit, and, like everybody wanted to use it. There were so many people excited. And I really hope that that's still there when we relaunch in a couple of weeks. But uh, yeah, we had to do the right thing and nobody lost money. So that that was my my metric for success. Yeah, I mean, I, I can only imagine kind of like how uh, yeah, like problematic it also is, right? And I think this is, you know, like kind of going through and, you know, would also say like really like would commend you guys for like what what happened and i think with something like this i mean the problem is that you know in today's day and age like if you can grieve other people people will do it you know you can imagine the first time someone with a famous ens borrows something in in that situation you can imagine someone sitting there and clapping their hands and, and adding debt to that position or you know oh the board ape markets i mean they would be be destroyed you know so like even with, with something like this of course you always need to to do it right like even if it doesn't make sense to you then like that someone would do this like people would for sure do it you know yeah the, the threshold we i use at least is would i still use the protocol knowing that this is there and if the answer is no then we we have to advise people to wind it down i, I think my one request to the world is that maybe people can get a little more used to that like uh that cycle because we you don't want to encourage governance. Governance is not scale. It's never going to work long term. Uh, you know, there's there's plenty of room for participation of token holders and ecosystems, but changing the composition of smart contracts should not be one of those things. You can change parameters. You can vote on grants and on ecosystem building, but changing code should just not be what a delegate or what a token holder does. And uh, I think that if people were just more accepting of having to pay attention to their positions or having a, you know, del basically delegating that responsibility to a front end to pay attention to their position, then these protocols could ship immutably because you generally do get a heads up when there is a something wrong. Like you, you can put enough procedures in place where you could detect a problem, alert everyone you need to alert. And then as long as they're paying attention, they could wind down and put it back in the protocol as soon as it's back up. But, but isn't there also like <clears throat> another problem here a little bit, which is that I think most of the DeFi protocols we, we see today are not like finished, you know, like a lot of them are kind of like work in progress. And I know there's some, you know, there's different iterations on how you build this out, right? I think, you know, like with Ashna, you can like say, okay, the protocol is done. This is, you know, it's perfect. So it's, it's never going to get better. It's never going to get worse. You know, exactly what you have. Um, you know, there's someone like, you know, Ave who releases, you know, like Ave V1, V2, V3, and kind of like, you know, does it like this, where you also have to migrate, um, where you can like say that the protocol is finished. Um, but, but there's, for example, other ecosystems, like let's say on like the L2 side, you know, where they continuously will want to improve the technology, improve the project and the protocol. Right. So it, I guess it's not like, it's not, it's not kind of like a one shoe fits all. Right. Because it's, I think there's definitely still some, you know, projects that would want to not launch this and just say, this is as it is, you know, you can only use it like this, but who wants to do this like incremental uh, improvements over time, right? And, and but, but there's nothing stopping people from that. I mean, even, even Ajna could do incremental improvements. You just need to launch a new version and the liquidity needs to go there. That's how Uniswap does it. That's how all the L2s that you just mentioned do it. That's how Ethereum does it. That's how Bitcoin does it. The only projects that don't do it that way are for some reason DeFi protocols. Who, who don't want users to opt in, but they want to make that decision on behalf of the user. And that's really what I take opposition to. I don't think token holders should make a major security decision on behalf of users. So perhaps related to that, uh, is, there, is, there, is it safe to say there's no multi-chain um, strategy here in place? It's up to the community to kind of 
be able to oh no we're uh we're redeploying on all the l2s so okay because ajna each pool is isolated it doesn't matter how many times it's been implemented across the chain so we're gonna we're gonna launch in a bunch of l2s along with mainnet gotcha and so coming back to now, how, how, just one question yeah. there how does the the uh, l2 fees and money that ashna earns around uh, the entire ecosystem go back to the main treasury yes so the main treasury is only on mainnet and the main ajna tokens only on mainnet and the way that we engineered it is that if you want to uh, let, let me just give a quick uh, explanation here so the ajna token the way it's used in our system it, it's the only currency that's accepted within the ajna protocol to buy pool reserves every ajna pool as lending and borrowing takes place accumulates reserves These reserves actually need to be accumulated because otherwise it introduces some sort of frictionless loop that could be exploited. So we needed these fees. We needed origination fees, we needed deposit fees, and we needed a net interest margin. All three of those things, uh, we could have burned them or we could have put them to use. So we decided to put them to use because burning would be very wasteful. Uh, but they needed to exist. That's my, my main point. Um, the way that they are taken out of pools is the pool will accept Ajna tokens as a currency to buy the reserves. So anytime reserves accumulated in a pool, anybody can come and kick off a reserve auction, which starts a reverse Dutch, sorry, a Dutch auction that begins at the entire supply of Ajna and then works its way down to whatever the market price is. So when we launch, there's going to be a billion Ajna tokens. Uh, that means that if there's reserves in a pool, when you kick off that reserve, it'll start and say, you can buy these reserves for 1 billion Ajna tokens. And after an hour, you could buy them for 500 million, another hour, 250 million. And eventually it'll get to a number of Ajna tokens that somebody is willing to send to the pool in exchange for the reserves. Um, and when they do that, those Ajna tokens are irretrievably burned. They're gone. Now, the way we do that on L2s is we have a con contracts called burn wrapped Ajna. This is a one way bridge to the L2 where you actually burn the Ajna on Ethereum beforehand and then can remint it on L2, but you can never come back. So the point is, if you're using this special contract, your only intent is to bring those Ajna tokens over to the L2 just to buy reserves because you're never going to be able to leave with the Ajna tokens. Uh, so perhaps related to that, Greg, could you explain um, for the listener that, be, you know, that wants to get involved once it's redeployed, uh, maybe not as a borrower or lender, but as, you know, maybe this this grant process, I believe that's outlined. Could you maybe explain what that is and, and what that aims to achieve? Yeah. So back when we were uh, a little more naive, we decided to also innovate on uh grants <laughs> so we built this um pretty cool grant mechanism that uses a uh i think it's square root not technically quadratic but it, it uses a, a more egalitarian method of voting so that you can distribute the, the effect is that basically every ajna token holder gets to distribute their share of the, the quarterly budget the way it works is that once per quarter there's this fixed permanent immutable cycle that will happen And every 90 days, 3% of the treasury, which constitutes 30% of the total Ajna token supply that will ever exist, uh, will be released to grants. And the way it's released is that there's two cycles. Cycle one, uh, everybody can submit a proposal. But this is just a simple one token, one vote. It happens for about 80 days, I believe, or 70 days. And uh, the top 10 proposals make it to the second round. The second round is the fundraising round. And here is where we use that square root voting mechanism where everybody gets the sum of squares of their tokens. And what that translates to is that every Ajna token holder gets to allocate their share of the budget to those 10 proposals, whoever these see fit. So if you have 1% of the Ajna tokens, 
you can put 1% of that quarterly budget towards whatever you want, um, as long as it's one of the top 10 approved proposals. And we had to do that top 10 thing because otherwise people would just uh, put in their own proposal and pay themselves. <laughs> and, and also what one other interesting feature that I don't think you see elsewhere, we have negative votes. So this is, this is where the combination of negative voting and having the sum of squares of tokens gets really interesting. Because if you think about what sum of squares of tokens means, you have the marginal cost of one vote elsewhere is very low to you. So if you put 99% of your tokens on one proposal, you're going to get, you know, a good amount of votes there. But if you put even one token on another proposal, it's going to have a disproportionate effect because we're using the sum of squares, not just the, the, the ordinary sum. And I know these are probably math words that are going to go over a lot of people's heads. I understand that. <laughs> You'll see it in practice. It'll be a lot more intuitive. The point is, if, you, if somebody's doing something you don't like, you can vote negative against them and you don't have to spend that much of your money to do it, but you will have to take away from something that maybe you want to get funded. Greg, so is it safe to say that maybe this process that you just illustrated is the form or the method that kind of produces uh, Ajna's ecosystem? So maybe projects yes. that want to work on top of it, within it, uh, adjacent to it, this is the, the method that teams and, and will kind of go down. Yeah, so after we redeploy, Ajna's not going to have a, a core team anymore. We're winding down our entity, we're disbanding. We think what's best for a decentralized protocol is not to have a centralized group of people that uh, basically builds out the ecosystem in perpetuity. Because if you think about it, that's not a sustainable business model. You, you have no way of getting revenue. <laughs> you, you have potentially a fixed supply of tokens that'll run out. You build a lot of dependency to this core group that then dissipates because the core group can't fund itself anymore. So just like the protocol itself, we want the ecosystem to scale in a similar way. Rocky at first, but then solid. And the way we think we can achieve that is through this innovative grants mechanism, where you, you don't have a winner-take-all majority rules mentality or even mechanism. You have the ability to come in and allocate your pro rata share of the budget as a token holder. I, I want to shift over the conversation uh, to, to some more philosophical questions I wanted to ask you. I want to take advantage while I had you, because I think you have a very interesting perspective on DeFi um, and the philosophy of these uh, protocols. Uh, so, and, and, and the best analogies. <laughs> exactly. So I, I recently came across your, you published this piece, um, I, I think a few months back now, um, basically uh, talking about DeFi for first principles, uh, building DeFi for, for first principles. Um, and in the piece, you, you kind of um, describe that the D in DeFi is a farce. Uh, so I just kind of wanted to get, you know, hear you expand on this um, idea. You know, what, have, what has DeFi done that has led you to believe that the D in DeFi is not really, you know, correct or, or we haven't gotten it right? Well, I mean, I wouldn't, I think having gotten it right is a little too soft, to be honest with you. Like, it doesn't exist. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a lie. You, can't, you cannot call something decentralized that uses a very small group of token holders to make all the decisions. That's not decentralization. That's, that's a corporation. That, that's a corporation where the board has a considerable amount of control. I, I, I just don't even... I, I would counter it and say, what about the, De the blue chip DeFi protocols of today do you believe is decentralized? Mm, I mean, I think like, uh, you know... I think like decentralization is something which is like definitely like the ultimate goal. And, and I think that, you know, like some teams, I'm not saying all teams, but some teams definitely like work towards that goal. But, but I think it comes a little bit back to also what I mentioned before, right? Which is that, you know, like you have, you have managed to build a protocol. 
Ashna, which is, you know, perfect in, in the sense that it's exactly as, as you want it to be today, right? And, and once it's relaunched, there's no changes that you think you could make to it that would make it better, right? Um, I just that, don't think that like a lot true, of protocols... I, I think there's no? going to be a lot of changes we want to make to it. We can't make them. And I think it's a worthy trade-off because if you think about mm -hmm. what it's going to look like in the future, sure, there'll be some feature improvement that we want to make. But is that feature improvement worth the security risk and worth the liquidity fragmentation that it would cause? Probably not. I mean, but the, but but then you could say that, like you know, you could have launched Ashna, um, let's say, like with upgradability and and a, a, a governance system that is controlled by you know like the token holders for you know one or two years. You could have actually built Ashna up with you know build the liquidity up, probably maybe not the exact same levels, but let's just say like I don't think right now we have like it proven that a, a, a more decentralized protocol would attract more liquidity. I think a lot of time users don't really care about decentralization. But you could have built this out for like one or two years more and then you could have launched an ev like the best product it could be with all the things you wanted in it and then you could have removed control completely. Ha you know, these, and then it could have been... You've seen, you like my analogy, so you've seen The Lord of the Rings, right? Yeah. Do, sure. do you know the, the metaphor of the Lord of the Rings? Like it's it, the, the ring of power. They, it's, they don't want to give it up. There, there's never been an example of a group of people that have just altruistically given up a huge amount of power because it's the right thing to do. And I don't even trust myself or the team to do that. So now we don't have to. Like the, the point, like, do you, do you honestly think any of these DeFi protocols without some form of hard government intervention are going to just burn the keys and say, this is it, it's done? No chance. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. I think that there. I know that there is some DeFi founders up there who, who out there who actually want to leave the protocol and leave the project um, behind, right? And I think we've already kind of seen this tried in multiple uh, scenarios uh, where it, for one reason or the other, maybe didn't happen out exactly as, as that was supposed to be. But but you get my point, right? I think like uh, the, the idea of like saying like, oh, what we have today is kind of like, you know, so perfect that we can be fully decentralized. It's just a very rare case. Uh, it, it takes a long time to build no, but, out but it, it's the finance the of the future. Frame. Because the, the question isn't whether it's perfect today. It's whether it's good enough to last for the future and not be beaten by marginal improvements. And, and this is exactly what we see with any, any product that has a network effect. I mean, like, let, let's, let's think, name a product like Twitter, right? T Twitter's like the Hotel California. Like you, you, you could check out anytime you like, but you're never leaving. <laughs> you're not going to threads. You're not going to, uh, what, what's the new one? What's the stupid one? Mastodon. No, no one's going to Mastodon. You know why? Because Twitter has the <laughs> network effect and no marginal improvement you may make on Twitter is going to take you away because it's good enough. Now, if something comes along that's 10 times better than Twitter, absolutely. Everyone's going to go to that. But short of that 10x improvement, which you can't prevent anyway with an upgrade, then you should have just stuck with good enough and it would have been much better for everybody. So are you count based on that analogy of the way you just described that, are you accounting that the incremental progress we're going to make in DeFi is not going to 10X? To new token standards, new mechanisms. Is that is that fair to say the way you just described that? I, I can't imagine a token standard that's 10X ERC-20. I think we're going to be using ERC-20 for a long, long time just because it's it, it's like, like, why do we use a certain gauge of railroad tracks? Like, are they the perfect gauge of railroad tracks? No, but they were good enough to get all the trains on them. And now we have trains. 
<laughs> it's better to have trains everywhere than to have the perfect railroad tracks. All right, gentlemen, I think, I think we'll call it here. I know we could probably go on for another <laughs> hour and throw a bunch of different analogies. Um, so yeah, any, any final thoughts or, or anything you want to plug Greg? Um, well, I guess I'll give uh, you guys a shout out. So I know that you're going to be one of our first Ajna delegates. So meaning a group that's available to delegate to, if you are an Ajna token holder that will participate on your behalf in the grants process and, you know, knowing your team and knowing Gustav and Du for so long, like I can't say that there's anyone I would trust more with that role. So I'm I'm really glad you guys are in the ecosystem, and uh, I'm very excited to see what you guys support in the process. Yeah, we are. I think like you know, you know, I think of course you know, Greg. Uh, we we might have different opinions on a couple of topics, uh, but like in general, I think like what you guys have done with Ashna is is incredible, and uh, I can also play the devil's advocate because I believe so much in what you're doing so yeah like kind of like for us to be able to be part of it we are super excited and it's going to be amazing very cool well thanks for having me on guys i really appreciate it thank you so much greg thank you gustav we'll see you on the next episode of stable pod